I'm happy to be here at the Angelicum to speak about St. Thomas Aquinas. I'm not a specialist of Thomas Aquinas. I'm not a specialist of spiritual theology, actually. A little bit more of Edith Stein. But uh, still happy to be here with Father Michael, who was my professor in Fribourg. And yeah, so the Dominican connection is mainly from Fribourg, where I did almost all my theological studies. What I'm going to present in 30 minutes is twofold. I will begin with a kind of sketch of three aspects that are structuring for the whole spiritual life. That is God's presence in us, the face that we are created in God's image, and divine filiation. I will argue that Aquinas has a lot to offer to the Carmelites in this regard. In the second part, however, I will turn to a difficult question and more specifically to the question of how to distinguish between Trinitarian inhabitation and mystical union. In this part, I will be particularly in touch with Edith Stein. So let's start with God's presence and humans as filial images. In the interior castle, Teresa of Avila's spiritual synthesis, she describes her soul with the metaphorical language of a castle and the innumerable mansions within it, fundamentally distinguishing seven. In the fifth mansions, Teresa deals with the prayer of union, that is, the union of wills as a consequence of life in grace or as a mystical experience. The gift of experiencing her own will as being united to God's offers the occasion for this brief theological observation, and I quote what you have on the handout. I know a person who hadn't learned that God was in all things by presence, power, and essence, and through a favor of this kind, that is prayer of union, that God granted her, she came to believe it. After asking a half-learned man of the kind I mentioned, he knew as little as she had known before God enlightened her. She was told that God was present only by grace. Such was her own conviction that even after this, she didn't believe him and asked others who told her the truth, with which she was greatly consoled. Well, given that sanctifying grace, understood as a habitus, qualifies the essence of the souls, it could seem defendable at first to state that God is present in us only by grace. However, this is only half the truth and does not correspond to Teresa's experience of God as being present and acting in all things. Given this discrepancy, it must have been of great relief to learn the truth from a Dominican friar, probably Vicente Baron, according to Gracian, who annotated Teresa's mansions. Of course, Baron's position is not his own invention, but is drawn from the Summa Theologiae, where Aquinas deals with God's presence in all things. And I quote, again, handout, God exists in everything by power inasmuch as everything is subject to his power by presence inasmuch as everything is naked and upon to his gaze and by essence inasmuch as he exists in everything causing their existence. This affirmation about God as creator and providence in his relationship to all his creatures is a game changer in Teresa's search 
for a better understanding and interpretation of her mystical experience. She knows that the lowest and the highest mode of union with God are connected. Mystical union with God is not only founded on God's grace, but even more fundamentally on God's presence of immensity. In other words, the prayer of union for Teresa is not only an open door to the theology of grace, but to a theology of creation, realizing by experience God's acting presence and relationship with all that exists. Of course, the lowest and the highest mode of union with God are not the same. But according to Teresa and according to another Carmelite saint, Edith Stein, the change involved in these different modes primarily concerns the human being, or more precisely, the graceful transformation of the human being. And I quote Edith Stein in her Signs of the Cross. The human in the, it is the same one God in three persons who is present in each of the three modes of union. And his immutable being is the same in all three modes. Still, the indwelling is different because that wherein dwells the one and same unchanged deity changes its mode of being each time. Thus, the nature of the indwelling is modified. The human mode of being changes by grace. Of course, there are different ways to account for this transformation of the human being, but it's just that one of these ways allows us to make an interesting connection between Aquinas and the Carmelite tradition. I refer to the well-known doctrine of the image of God. For Aquinas, in an updated version of Augustine's perspective, the image of God, more precisely the image of the intra-Trinitarian processions, is to be found primarily in the spiritual acts of knowing and loving, and only secondarily in the spiritual faculties. Of course, knowing and loving are not only the corresponding acts of two spiritual faculties, but concern the person as such, including his or her corporeality. Maybe the most important element here in the light of post-conciliar theological anthropology is that for Aquinas, the image of God has its own history and becoming. It is to be related to creation and to redemption as well to eternal glory. And I quote Aquinas, thus God's image can be considered in man in, at three stages. The first stage in man's natural, is man's natural aptitude for understanding and loving God. An aptitude which consists in the very nature of the mind, which is common to all men. The next stage is where a man is actually or dispositively knowing and loving God, but still imperfectly. And here we have the image of conformity of grace. The third stage is where a man is actually knowing and loving God perfectly, and this is the image by likeness of glory. Aquinas does not speak of three distinct images of God, but of an image of God in a historical perspective, understood as a capacity to know and love God, initially fulfilled by the gift of grace and the actualized virtues of faith and love, ultimately fulfilled in the beatific vision and union. In the Carmelite way, the image of God is not very present as a theological theme, 
with the exception maybe of Edishstein. But it is of particular importance as a condition and a context for the spiritual life as such. This is particularly evident for John of the Cross. In his doctrine of purification in the ascent of Mount Carmel, he speaks about different types of harm to the soul caused by disordered attachment to creatures. One of these is that such attachments soil the soul and make us similar to the creatures we are attached to, even though the person's soul as such is in itself, as he says and writes, in itself a perfect and extremely beautiful image of God. Later, almost at the end of the second version of his spiritual canticle, John insists that deification by participation is the telos of our creation as divine image and likeness. And I quote uh, John in the spiritual canticle, one should not think it impossible that the soul be capable of so sublime an activity as this breathing in God through participation as God breatheth in her. For granted that God favors her by union with the most blessed Trinity in which she becomes day form and God through participation, how could it be incredible that she also understand, know and love or better that this be done in her, in the Trinity, together with it, as does the Trinity itself. Yet God accomplishes this in the soul through communication and participation. This is transformation in the three persons in power and wisdom and love. And thus, the soul is like God through this transformation. He created her in his image and likeness that she might attain such resemblance. The image and likeness of God attested in the book of Genesis is not only to be understood as an affirmation of the person's dignity, but of her vocation to be transformed into three persons by participating to God's power, wisdom, and love as appropriated to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's now switch to, well, I, I will leave one of the quotations in the handout and I'll go to the question of divine filiation. The idea of a transformation of the image of God as such could remain at the level of an abstract consideration of our human being. For this reason, I think it is particularly interesting that Aquinas understands the progressive realization of the image of God as related to, to divine filiation, because this means that the image of God is filial in nature, a filial image. As we can see in the question he dedicates to the Divine Father in the first part of the Summa Theologiae. So I won't quote the whole text uh, you have on the handout, but uh, well, this kind of affirmation that there is a creational divine filiation uh, has a certain potential today in theological anthropology, I think. This passage is particularly important in order to understand 
how creation and redemption are related and how the creation is such, and more specifically, the human creature is filial in nature and gifted with a filial vocation gracefully realized. Divine filiation, not only as a starting point, but also as graceful filial relation unfolding in a person's history, is one possible way to speak about our spiritual life. However, there are at least two other major ways or analogies of considering the human divine relationship, that is, sponsality and friendship. And maybe that seems like a caricature, but uh, for Teresa of Avila, I think when she speaks very personally, she privileges friendship as a way to speak about her relationship with God, with Christ in particular. And for John of the Cross, it is sponsality. Uh, there are two other Carmelite saints where there is maybe a kind of preponderance of the idea of filiation, divine filiation, and it's Thérèse uh, of Lisieux and Edith Stein. For Thérèse, when considering her way towards God, her littleness is a key to confidence and love, and it is implicitly or explicitly linked to divine filiation. The following passage at the beginning of her manuscript B is particularly significant, and you have that on your handout. Jesus deigned to show me the road that leads to this divine furnace, and this road is the surrender of the little child who sleeps without fear in its father's arms. Whoever is a little one, let him come to me. Therese offers her little way the path of trust and love, also known as the way of spiritual childhood. as universal because everyone can follow this way, whatever their age or their state in life. It is the way that the Heavenly Father reveals to the little ones. Therese is a good example of somebody who, starting from a very positive human experience of filiation, understands her own spiritual growth in the gospel preferentially in the same perspective of being a child of God. Of course, the human experience can be an obstacle as well. And that happens actually quite often. In a very different context, Edith Stein refers to divine filiation as a key to a better understanding of our human divine relationship. And I quote again Stein, to be a child of God means to go hand in hand with God, to do his will, not one's own, to place all our hopes and cares in his hands and no longer be concerned about oneself or future. Thereupon rest the freedom and the fröhlichkeit of the child of God. For Edith Stein, who lost her own father when she was not even two years old, the context is quite different. It does not seem to be from her human experience that she is inclined to this affinity towards spiritual childhood, but it may be due to her Jewish consciousness of a filial relationship with God. This filiality is present in Paul when he writes to the Romans that the first and ongoing Jewish privilege is huotesia, that is adoptive filiation. Uh, in the letter to the Romans in chapter 9. So it's exactly the same term 
Paul uses four other times to speak about our adoptive filiation. In addition, the metaphor of the hand is very prominent in Stein, in her spiritual writings, with its triple meaning, to have one's life in one's hands, that is, the relative autonomy of one's life, to abandon one's life into God's hands, and finally, to walk hand in hand with God. This idea of walking hand in hand with God is actually, for her, an expression, a concrete expression of divine filiation. So before coming to the next second part, uh, I would like to recall the three topics we have touched so far. God's presence and union with him, humans as the created and recreated image of God, and divine filiation as related to creation and to redemption. These themes, according to the interpretations of both Aquinas and the Carmelite tradition, necessarily refer to both creation and redemption. However, in my view, Aquinas also offers an elaborate theology of creation, including a metaphysical account of God's presence and providence in the world and in humans, as well as an insightful articulation of nature and grace as related to the image of God and divine filiation. And I would say that the Carmelite saints find here a philosophical and theological background for what they intuitively see as a necessary condition for the life in the spirit. So that is, if you want, my captatio benevolentiae at the Angelicum. Uh, let's get now to a more problematic issue, life in the spirit, grace and mystical experience. This stage, I would like to focus on the broad and general question of union with God, not from the point of view of God's acting presence in all that exists, but from the point of view of the distinction between Trinitarian inhabitation and mystical union. A classical way of understanding this distinction is to consider mystical union as a higher degree of the life in grace characterized by Trinitarian inhabitation. In this perspective, the main aim is to show that mystical union is an intensification and a proleptic fulfillment of the life in grace by means of the theological virtues. This seems very clear from a theological point of view, as we have already seen when I spoke about the image of God and divine filiation. The Christian life in the spirit must be conceived in terms of continuity rather than in terms of novelty, reserving novelty for eschatological fulfillment. And the distinction between imago recreationis and imago gloriae. On this subject, I would like to recall the stimulating publication by Bernard Mavielle, who writes about half a century of discussion uh, from 1890 to 1940 on the question of who is a mystic. The debate concerns Auguste Saudreau, as well as the Dominicans with Carigou Lagrange and the Jesuits, in particular Auguste Poulain, and the interaction between the Dominican journal La Vie Spirituelle and uh, La Revue d'Ascétique et de Mystique. The common line in Saudreau, La Vie Spirituelle and Carigou Lagrange, is the theologically founded conviction that there is no difference in nature between an ordinary Christian life and a mystical life. This view is clearly related to what we have already said about the image of God and divine filiation. 
There is a difference in nature between the imago creationis, imago recreationis, and the imago gloriae, as well as between creational filiation, adoptive filiation, and inheritance in eternal life. However, a specific and not only gradual distinction between the Christian life and the mystical life is not possible, since both are to be located in relation to the same, to the same reality of the imago recreationis and the adoptive filiation. A distinction in nature would imply a confusion between life on earth and life in heaven. In short, even before considering concrete mystical experiences, and finally, independently of any experience, it seems obvious that a distinction in nature between life in grace and mystical life is impossible from a theological point of view. Another more pastoral argument for refusing an essential distinction is the danger that such a sharp distinction has actually led to an elitist view of the contemplative life. A major theological contribution of the first half of the 20th century, decisive for the Second Vatican Council, was to overcome this elitism, which was favored by creating an abyss between consecrated persons called to the heats of contemplation and the faithful who are simply in touch with the precepts of the church. Uh, I believe that the Dominicans contributed not only to a democratic, so well, democratization of the religious life and governments, but also to the democratization of mysticism, overcoming the idea that the mystical life is something reserved for a few chosen ones. Today, however, in a different context, there is a certain incapacity to find out what could be specifically mystical when the mystical life is simply a synonym for an intense Christian life or a life under the impulse of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the universal call to holiness is interpreted as a universal call to the mystical life. I'm sure that the Dominican tradition has answers to this issue. However, I would like to explore why Carmelite saints, in general, focus more on the novelty of mystical union without suggesting an extrinsic and elitist vision of Christian mysticism. I think that this can be best shown with Edith Stein, and more precisely with Edith Stein as an interpreter of Teresa of Jesus and John of the Cross. In her last work, The Signs of the Cross, she devotes a whole section to the question of the different species or modes, the verschiedene Arten, of union with God. In her very suggestive study of these species, she does not position herself as a theologian. Actually, she's not a theologian. Uh, but she positions herself as a phenomenologist, considering the nature of the lived experience of interpersonal union. What kinds of acts are specific to our Christian life? And what acts are present in the life of a mystic? As a reader of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, Stein thinks that from a phenomenological point of view, 
there is a specific, not just gradual, distinction between union by grace and mystical union with God. Of course, that does not mean that mystical union would leave behind the theological and cardinal virtues in the life of the mystic, nor the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I will now introduce uh, some subsidiary arguments before concentrating on Stein's main point, which is the different kinds of experience of union with God. Stein is not only an interpreter of Teresa and John, but she also has her own experience to contribute, though she does not, she does so in a very different and discreet way. For Catholic theologians, it has usually been obvious that baptism is the starting point for a gradually growing Christian life and the condition of possibility for mystical experiences. So-called mystical experiences outside, outside of this context sometimes were regarded as natural, not supernatural, because supernatural mystical experiences are a higher degree of life in grace and therefore necessarily presuppose faith race, and theological virtues. Edith Stein was baptized at the age of 30. But before that, she had what might be called mystical experiences. In other words, Stein's experience goes from mystical experience, and not simply prevenient grace, to baptismal life. As she puts it in Signs of a Cross, I quote, the indwelling by grace is not necessarily a prerequisite for a simple touch in the inmost region. It can be given to a total unbeliever to cause an awakening of faith and as a preparation for the reception of sanctifying grace. Stein speaks of quickly passing mystical experiences, a simple touch in the inmost, but permanent Mystical union is only possible for believers. There is no achievement in mystical union without faith, grace, and theological virtues, and these are surely not put aside by Stein. So actually, that is maybe the most important distinction she has, the distinction between mystical experience, passing experience, and mystical permanent union, which is based on a life in grace. The mystical experience, not necessarily. There is also a special insistence in the Carmelite way that mystical graces are a free gift from God to be distinguished from the gift of creation and the gift of sanctifying grace. For Stein, mystical graces are not necessarily part of the Christian life. They are neither necessary for salvation nor for holiness. But this does not mean elitism because we cannot say that such graces make the person better than without them. So they're very relative in the end, in, in this perspective. The emphasis is on the unique vocation of the person and on the mystery of the providence of God who alone knows the best way for us. This helps to avoid any form of pressure or even guilt for those who are not mystically gifted. They might feel that they lack the necessary dispositions to receive mystical graces and that they are guilty of not being gifted with them. Of course, this could be linked to a certain image 
of such graces as extraordinary, whereas essentially, according to Stein, a mystical grace is very simply to fühlen, spüren, to feel God's presence spiritually. As we saw in the beginning by quoting Teresa, uh, speaking on the union of wills. Stein's main argument, however, is that from a phenological point of view, in mystical union, and especially in mystical marriage, the gift of self or loving surrender is not only an act of the will, but a different, more all-encompassing act. Mystical union in marriage imply a new knowledge of God from person to person, though not face to face, and of one's own inmost depths. Such a union implies that a person is received in his or her inmost being. So I will now quote the last text you have on the, on the handout. It's from Edith Stein. It is a union of persons that does not end their independence, but rather has it as a prerequisite, an interpenetration that is surpassed only by the circumcision of the divine persons, upon which it is modeled. The mystical marriage is union with the triune God, as long as God touches the soul only in darkness and hiddenness, she can only feel the personal touch as just that without also perceiving whether it is one person who touches or whether there are more. But once she is completely drawn into the divine life in the perfect union of love, it can no longer be concealed from her that it is a three-personal life and she needs to establish contact with all the three, the three divine persons. Edith Stein, as an interpreter of the Carmelite way, states that there is an experience of knowing and surrendering to God, not only through our spiritual faculties, but in the essence of the soul. This direct contact is compared to an encounter from person to person, although it does not mean a vision from face to face. It could be compared to what Teresa of Avila writes about her mystical experience in her interior castle. It is like knowing that somebody is present in a dark room without seeing the, the person, but knowing that she's there. Mystical graces pass quickly and leave the person with what is constitutive for every Christian life, guided by the Spirit, his gifts, living in faith, hope, and charity, practicing the cardinal virtues, and so on. Mystics are not in any way above other Christians. However, according to Stein, mystical graces leave a seal on the soul. An experience lived in the essence, the essence of the soul, in which colors the whole Christian life as such, but which still implies the risk of failure, as there can be failure in human marriage. According to Edith Stein, focusing on the experience of God, mystical union and marriage seem to remain quite rare. 
However, what she describes as the most essential, mystical experience, that of being touched by God in one's inmost being, may be much more widespread than initially thought. And so, even if mystical graces imply a new form of divine gratuity, they still can be very common, maybe universal in the end, who knows, uh, because God is bonum diffusivum sui. And this is indeed the point that a Carmelite, another Carmelite, like uh, Marie-Eugène de l'Enfant Jésus, uh, has, has made, because he insists a lot not only on the universal call to holiness, but also the universal call to mystical life. Well, maybe he does not have the same uh, depths from this phenomenological point of view I tried to, to make with Edith Stein, but uh, he's more close to the Dominican tradition for sure. Thank you for your attention.